Hello and welcome back to Sustainapod, the youth-led podcast for young people and anyone interested in sustainability across the world. My name is Chinny and today I'll be hosting this episode of the Green Careers mini-series where we explore careers in sustainability. Today we are honored to have Carter Cheng, who is a program evaluation lead at the United States SCAP and a United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network Local Pathways Fellow, who specializes in climate policy, technology, and geopolitics. Outside the UN, Carter is the Sustainability Research Lead and Impact Officer of the London Leadership Team of the World Economic Forum Global Shapers Initiative. In 2021 to 2022, Carter represented the younger generation working in the UN system to attend the 10th United Nations ECOSOC Forum and was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts of the UK and a member of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. In academia, Carter researched AI governance in the Asia and Asia-Pacific geopolitics as a Yenching scholar and Asia, Asian future leader scholar at Peking University and Baixian Asia Institute. Carter holds master degrees from the London School of Economics, Peking University, and University of St. Andrews, as well as a certificate in global business from Harvard Business School. Welcome, Carter. It's great to have you here. Hello. Nice to see you here. So first question, can you share a bit more about your role as a facilitator in the UN? Yeah, sure. Well, I have to say, well, it's actually divided into different service areas. So I have been very fortunate to sit in um, research, field operations, and then right now is more on evaluation work. So I started off as an economic affairs intern. So it was back then, it was like, I think five years ago, it was mostly about facilitating international negotiations in order to develop a uniform testing standard for um, the most used agricultural machineries and technologies back then. And then after that, I worked on these projects across Asia Pacific. And then the next seat was in research. So it was mostly supporting the department's research on advising governments, associations, and other leading business on how to transition to the kind of carbon neutral agricultural production and with technologies. And, and right now I'm doing the evaluation work at my department to find ways to make the projects we do right now more effective, more efficient. And yeah, so that's basically what I do at the UN. Yeah, and it sounds like there's a lot of like different roles that you have to do, like loads of different projects and tasks, I guess. So yeah, so the next question is, how did you first enter into kind of the UN remit? Could you share your academic journeys or trainings or any specific qualifications that need to be obtained for this line of work? Yeah, sure. So, well, it's actually quite a traditional way, an ordinary story that, so I study international relations at St. Andrews for undergrad. And then in my final year, so I, I was still more like searching what kind of work I want to do. So I applied to a lot of things like, like journalism as well. And, and also school and think tank. Yeah. Think tank. Yeah. That's another the second option. So I actually back then I got offers for another 
major think tank based in the U.S. as well. And then before, uh, no, after it, I got the offer from the U.N. So I applied through the internship program. And I actually didn't thought that I would get in because, yeah, I don't know anything about like the, like how competitive the whole process is. And, and also it's like, I thought it's such a, such a vague organization. I probably wouldn't stand a chance. Yeah. But yeah, I think luck is, is one of the reasons that I got into it. And then I attended an interview and then, yeah. And then there's another more like case interview, like, yeah, you were being fed with different kinds of situations. And then they asked about, okay, how you would do it. What would, how would you react in those situations? And then I got in. Yeah. Yeah, and I think luck, I think it's definitely because of your experience. I think you're definitely very qualified for this role, and I'm sure you're doing very well. No, well, yeah, I can add a little bit about, like, because after the interview, so I actually worked for the per my interviewer, like, during the recruitment process. She's now still my supervisor, and then I asked her why she hired me. And then the main reason is because for one competency-based question, I just answer something with my school experience it's about organizing events and then she asked me so what is the most important quality about organizing like large scales event and then i said it's communication skills and then yeah and then she was quite happy about it and then yeah that was pretty much what happened yeah yeah and i think it's 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 simple it's like a simple answer but it's effective so i think it's definitely a good answer and something smart to have but i think you probably answered that the why now is what prompted you to kind of choose the un over maybe some of the other options you were given well back then i think mostly it's because i'm really drawn to the kind of mystery or things that i'm not sure about like the unknown like the uncertainties especially i thought i thought like I was so young and then it's like the whole world in front of me and then before really set my mind on something why not try something that i have absolutely no idea about and because previously i already before graduation i already worked at different big tanks and then i kind of have an idea about what's going on so yeah so that's why between think tank and and the un i chose the un okay yeah and i think I think UN just it's so daunting because it's such a huge organization so I completely yeah. understand it obviously if they gave me an offer to work there I'd obviously choose it as well but yeah I think definitely your your kind of cause or your drive to choose it is a definitely like an important factor so bringing the topic of sustainability flow how do you think sustainability factors mm -hmm. into your work as a UN facilitator well, it's it's basically everything we do is about sustainability. So the department I work with is it's called the Center for Sustainable Agricultural Mechanization. So yeah, so that's why that's the core thing. Well, but it's not just very narrowly limited to climate action or try to make everything green. More than that, we actually do projects and hopefully through the use of technology and bringing those agricultural technologies to developing countries to achieve different causes like economic empowerment and also social equality, gender equality as well. Yeah, because just imagine, well, 
agriculturalists itself is actually a very male-dominated industry. But no matter whether it's like production itself on ground or the studying of it, the agricultural machinery or technology engineers or the professors in different kind of sustainability practices at school. So yeah, so the goal in a general or wider sense is that we're trying to take in all these elements like gender equality, everything in the SDG to hopefully that a little bit in different brands. Yeah, and I think the last part was definitely really important. Like the SDGs play like a huge role, especially since the UN made the SDGs. Like you obviously have to kind of follow them. And I think it's really cool that there's so many different kind of pro like thing you said, economic empowerment, social equality, gender inequality. And then a lot of people don't realize like how tied these are to kind of agriculture and technology. So I think it's definitely a very important mm -hmm. role. So mm -hmm. Speaking of kind of the field in which you work, what has been the biggest challenge in entering this field or kind of the things that you have to do in this field and how do you overcome these things? Well, I think, well, there are definitely a lot of challenges. Like you have to be really adaptable and flexible in very fast changing circumstances, especially if you're working on field operations or you're delivering projects overseas because a lot of very unexpected things could happen there could be some kind of like social unrest major riots or like protests going and yeah just imagine yeah because i work my focus is was mostly on southeast asia and for developing countries, yeah, a lot of things that I mentioned could happen over there. Yeah. So for that part, I think the challenging part would be to be adaptable to those situations. And also because the job itself actually entail working, not just within the UN system with other UN agency or departments, but also with local partners, like they could be the local project counterparts, they could be the business associations, and sometimes the, there could be language barrier. Yeah. Even though they could be very friendly, very welcoming, but at the same time, yeah, because of the cultural differences and also the training background, all of things, yeah, there are a lot of adjustments in order to ensure that their project it's rolled out smoothly, or at least it could, it can still roll out. Yeah. So that's the most challenging part and but I, I would say it's actually also the most exciting part because you don't really know what's what's ahead of you yeah yeah and I think that's like kind of the thrill about having a career like this is that it's incredibly versatile so it's constantly like developing and also a lot of things within it are changing and it's based on like current world affairs and things like that so I think it's definitely mm -hmm. more of yeah kind of like that but this is a bit of a standout question. What is something that people might not know about in your line of work? Oh, mm, that's a great question. Yeah, because to me right now, everything is known. It's hard to know like what people don't know. Well, what do you think people I'm... might associate with kind of your job role? I think... Well, for, I think for the recruitment process, I think a lot of people think that it's very daunting, 
but I think I have to clarify, at least from my experience, it wasn't that bad, bad. Well, the whole process is like, it also could be quite quick for the length of it, the duration of it. It's, it's really, it really depends because mine was actually pretty quick back then. I think I applied around like July after I graduated and then I was doing some kind of research. I think I was in Cambridge somewhere. Yeah. And then, yeah, a very chill environment. And then it, I didn't really, it was not very stressful. And then I just submitted a very simple application to fill in the form. And then, and then I think three weeks later, I got the interview and then the whole interview process and the assessment process actually was like all taking place within one week. And then I heard back almost immediately from my department. So yeah, instead of like compared to other very um, excruciatingly long recruitment process, UN is more like, it could be fast, but it really depends on different different departments, centers, or, or agency. Yeah. But at least well, in my case, it wasn't that bad. Yeah. So yeah, I probably, yeah, I would just, whenever people ask you about, okay, they want to work at the UN and what should they do? I would just say, yeah, just apply and then, and see how it turns out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's a really efficient process. Like what you mentioned, because obviously I think it sounds really daunting. I think that's definitely something that people might not know and that it's like, yeah, it's not as good that now we know that it's not as daunting and it's quite efficient, actually, from what you said. So good to know. Yeah, I, it well, again, I have to emphasize it really depends on different departments. Yeah, but I think in general for the Chinese offices, it would be faster. Yeah, because the, the amount for personnel is actually pretty big. And the, yeah, so in order to meet that demand, they need to be quick. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good to know. But the next question is, what has been the highlight of your career so far? Maybe there's, there's something like, what has, what have you had to celebrate about with your regards to your career? I think it's really... The highlight, I would say one thing that I'm super grateful about my time in the UN is the seat allocation, like from what I started with. And then right now I'm doing the evaluation because well, when I was doing like more like field work, delivering projects in different Southeast Asia countries, well, I got a lot of time to interact with those delegates, the local or national level officials from the Southeast Asian countries' governments. Yeah, so from that interaction, actually, it kind of built a kind of relationship because, like, it's more like those departments' people, and then you've got to see them again and again and again in different countries. So over the years, it's, it's really something that I would value. And then, and then we, even though some of them may be, like, moving to different departments within the government we still keep contact yeah but the most valuable thing or the highlight of my work is that right now I'm doing the evaluation and then I have even more time to like it's not like face-to-face -face, but there will be a lot of con communication and correspondence that I get to know how and what they actually think about the work we do and how much or whether or not we are what the work we do actually help them or their countries so yeah, the finding is very, 
fulfilling and encouraging because I wouldn't know so much about the stories, like the more like the behind stories or the impact that we actually have at the front line. So yeah, so I would pick one tiny example is that it wasn't from a super high level official it's more like a very local one from a quite remote and underdeveloped area it's a testing center director and then he was expressing that technology that we brought to them actually more like it's not like revolutionized but it was like a level up of what they because we actually brought down the kind of drones and then in order to do the, the application of pesticides and also other fertilizer and it's a quite a hilly area that you can't exactly set up those kind of traditional kind of irrigation system to apply on flat land so it was way harder than that so yeah so i was really really thrilled to know that we actually have some real impact on the ground yeah, and I think, I, I bet is it's probably very, very fulfilling, as you said, to know that your work is making an impact, but also to know that it's the specific areas and the ways it's making an impact is definitely really important to kind of gauge an understanding of how well you're doing and what you could probably do in the future. And as a wrap-up for the first section, what advice would you give to those who would like to pursue a career that is similar to yours right now? Yeah, sure. It's not... I think I mentioned a little bit before about what I advise people when they ask me or tell me they want to apply for UN. But to elaborate a little bit more about that, it's I think right now the competition may be slightly more competitive than before, but opportunities also increases because right now a lot of uh, other agencies, which wasn't recruiting before as i see it on the careers pages looks like they're more active in recruiting so my specific advice would be then to apply everything apply to everything that you can imagine yourself doing it so um because on their website you probably would see a lot of opportunities with very specific areas like my case was agriculture and then you would see something that could be entirely different, like women's rights or LGBT's rights or other things like social affairs or social innovation. So it's huge, wide range of things. And but my advice would then be apply to anything that you think you can imagine yourself doing instead of only those things that you're mostly interested in. Because, well, yeah, you want to really increase the odds and the chances that you get an interview and then you you have a chance to break into the industry. So yeah, that's pretty much my advice. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely really good advice. I think it's really good advice. Because I think a lot of the time we tend to like focus on the one or two things that we really want to do and then kind of like neglect everything else. But it's important to be broad and then maximize mm -hmm. your odds, as you said. And also, mm -hmm. yeah, breaking mm -hmm. into the industry. Because I mean, once you're in it, you can always gain the skills and then look to do something else so it's important that you just get in there first go so yeah now we're gonna move on yeah, to some definitely more. yeah yeah do you want to say anything more about that yeah please oh yeah just one more thing about the application as it's because for applications you actually only have to change a tiny thing because if 
as long as within the same system, you can actually use the old one and then change it a little bit and then submit it again. So it's actually not that hard to apply to multiple positions within the UN system. Yeah, so really try to capitalize on or make great use of that function. Yeah, I think that uh, this is very quite convenient in a sense. Yeah. So yeah, okay, that's good to know. Good to know. So we're going to move on to some more field-specific questions. So mm -hmm. firstly, could you explain a little more about agricultural technology and what your specific roles and responsibilities working in the Agritech International Trade and Investment Advisory Team are? Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, so, well, it could be... Well, there are really some major development in the field in the past years because well we all know that what we have right now we have ai we have big data and all these things just went literally explosive in the past years so when i was starting with the department like five years ago so the kind of machinery technologies that we work on is still quite limited. So the main thing would be something more traditional, like tractors, sprayers, or like precision agricultural systems, irrigation systems, or transplanters, things like that. Yeah, but over the few years, the last few years, it actually increasingly move on to something that is more hard to say like complicated delegated de delegate and just like robots drones and other devices that made a lot more on the latest technologies like ai or big data calculations or glorifans things like that yeah so yeah that's the very very simple overview about what happened in a view enough in the past few years so about what we do it's for for my department is more like we work in a very flat and quite a flexible structure so for me in the past few years so i have been working on some capacity building projects and regional cooperation projects so for capacity building projects it's more like telling different countries that Oh, so country A has this kind of technology, country B has this thing. So what these things can actually be tailored for and be applied to different situations. And probably technology A may be suitable for your situation in your country. There is like try to channel all these messages across for an amount the whole region. So yeah, so that's the capacity building part. And then for the regional cooperation part, it's like, cause for these machinery technologies to flow across borders, there could be a lot of barriers, just like the testing system, the standards, or even the tires they use could be different. And like the, for the tire that could be used in China, it, would be like entirely different in those to be used in Thailand. So the cooperation part would then be try to create the kind of atmosphere, the environment that would enable or accelerate the, the flow of, of these technologies. And also it could be us serving as a, a forum to allow them to know that 
Oh, actually, this kind of technology is is now available from country A, and then and well, at least they need to know it before they actually import it, export it. Yeah. So you've worked in Beijing, and you're also now based in London. So could you share、mm. more about how your work kind of differs between these two geographies? Right. Sure. So previously, when I started off, yeah, it was I was more really. Completely based in Beijing, but well, even so, a lot of the time it actually wasn't in Beijing, especially if I was doing the delivering projects overseas. So there could be a lot of international or domestic travels within China and also within the Southeast Asia region. So and then after that, because I was also researching at Peking University as a Yanjing scholar, so my supervisor was. Being super nice and accommodating to me, and then that's why I was allocated to focus more on research instead of delivering projects overseas. So yeah, so for a period of like one or two years, yeah, during my my time at the university at the same time, so it was more like based in Beijing instead of flying around. And then the pandemic came, and yeah, so it's basically like a total change of everything. So well, eat right right now for a lot of staff in my department. We still fly, but during the pandemic, especially the department itself is based in Beijing, and back then there was still quite stringent COVID policy about going in and out of the border. So a lot of things actually change into web mode through Zoom or hybrid mode. So yeah, so that's why right now, in general, for work arrangements within our department is actually way more flexible than before. And for my case, because at the moment I'm also being a local pathway fellow based in the based in London for the UNSDS, the as an SDSM network. So yeah, that is why I have to do the relocation as well, and also. For the work I do right now with my department, it's more like I can do it remotely because it's about the communication with our past project stakeholders, our, our current partners as well. So I don't have to visit them in person, even though previously in-person interactions still play a great part. But right now, in the post-pandemic times, we have learned and evolved to be more flexible with that. So this is why I'm able to do my work remotely. It's definitely really important to be flexible, and I agree that there have been loads of changes throughout、mm-hmm. like time and also location, like you said. And as a wrap question for the entire、mm-hmm. episode, what do you think is key to effective stakeholder engagement amongst U.S. UN member states? You mean how the UN can engage with different stakeholders better, right? Yeah. Or、mm, okay. Yeah. Well, I think okay. So right now, the strategy, especially after COP twenty six, the focus is on engaging or going beyond the public sector. View because previously, I think in the past decade, for the public sector, we actually already seen.、Um, Well, not like explosive, but definitely a notable increase of parties working on sustainable development. Like think tanks, governments, they're more aware of the issue and then have put in 
more effort and resources into the cost. But right now is more like try to extend it to like private sector stakeholders, like through the ESGs and then engage the, the leading companies and start with them first, because it's more likely and practical to engage them first instead of reaching out to smaller companies. But, but it's not like the smaller stakeholders are neglected. It's more like we try to work with um, things that is more likely to succeed. But well, at the same time, another key focus that we're doing right now is to engage young people that I think it's in, in even in 2020 that there are way a lot of way more that kind of youth-led initiative that is started within and beyond the UN in order to have more young people to be part of the this course and also the the whole policy making process yeah so yeah so that is generally an overview of the a stakeholder engagement situation the whole process that we have right now or the strategy and i think looking forward it's quite likely or well at least what i am trying to do is try to channel that kind of policy directions um closer and closer to the grassroots level. Yeah, and that's what the World Economic Forum initiative I'm working with has been doing. So a lot of us actually come from like governments or consulting Z firms and for my case from the UN. And then we are familiar with that kind of policy discourse at the top, but at the same time, we also need to channel it down to local levels that the SMEs or smaller stakeholders, they would be able to take action as well. That was definitely super comprehensive and insightful. And I think there's a lot to unpack there. But I think at the gist of it, it's important to engage stakeholders, obviously, to kind of better the organization and better your developments and what you do moving forward. So I think that's a great way to kind of wrap off today's episode. So thank you to you, Carter, for joining us today. Thank you to Sustainapod listeners for tuning in this week with us. We would love to hear more about you from this, ep- more from, we would love to hear from you about this episode. So let us know any questions or comments by messaging us on Instagram at Sustainapod underscore G-I-H or email us at sustainapodgmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Thank you.